Welcome to BIV Today, the daily business podcast from the Business in Vancouver newspaper and BIV.com. I'm Kirk LaPointe. I'm Tyler Orton. Later on in the show, Surrey Board of Trade CEO Anita Huberman. She's going to discuss the latest developments on Surrey's light rail transit plans. But coming up next, we're going to take a look at digital literacy in Canada. Canada? Well, we're going to have to look beyond coding and beyond programmers to ensure that we all have the skills to understand the technology embedded in our modern lives. Leveling up, the quest for digital literacy is a new report from the Brookfield Institute for Innovation and Entrepreneurship. It's mapping out the digital literacy training and education here in this country. And joining us with more, it's Sean Mullen. He's the executive director of the Institute, which is based at Ryerson University. Sean, great to have you back on the show. Great to be there. So are Canadians... Overall, digitally literate by the way that you guys would define it? Um, Canada does pretty well. Um, depends on which parts of the population. Uh, ironically, uh, our older uh, population, adults above 30, actually perform pretty well uh, compared to other kind of OEDC, OECD uh, countries. Uh, and our, our population is kind of below 30 are somewhat lagging, um, but overall we do pretty well. I, I think the broader thing that we're trying to articulate here is well may just not be enough for today's economy. Before we get too deeply into the report, describe what you consider to be digital literacy in this era. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a complicated uh, uh, complicated notion. I mean, what um, and without getting too specific on the definition, I mean, we see it as the set of skills that someone needs to productively contribute to society, uh, uh, whether that's um, in a in a workforce setting or just as a personal citizen uh, in their everyday lives, and, um, and and so that can be everything from. Uh, you know, very technical skills of a computer programmer, but it could also be just the more general set of skills of how to use the internet, how to use email, uh, how to communicate electronically, how to understand things like social media and other and other types of platforms. And at this point, I think pretty much any job out there in Canada is going to need some basic skills. Where are you know some people lacking? What are some of the key things that people? are going to have to work on if they want to be part of the modern workforce here in Canada. Yeah, and I think that it shows the nature of the challenge is, is that the bar keeps shifting, right? And and so things that we thought would have been advanced skills, let's say 20 years ago, uh, you know, if you knew how to use a spreadsheet, um, that would be a pretty advanced skill and you know financial analysts and others would be considered uh, you know proficient in that area. Now it, it's almost you don't have to be an expert, but but if a you know a basic administrative assistant job or any type of office job, if you don't know how to make your way around in a in a program like Excel, um, you can't you can't really uh, be productive in that environment. And so it, it's an illustrative example of how something that used to be a very cutting edge skill in the digital space that only a small number of uh, uh, people needed to understand are now becoming more and more uh, required just just to get in the door. And, you know, Excel is one example, but we would add 
uh, things like being able to use you know, search engines and the internet uh, in, a, in a productive way. Uh, we would say, you know, everything is kind of shifting to mobile. Uh, if you follow technology, none of these things are new, but that's kind of the point. It's, it's going from um, the technologically savvy to the broader population as a whole. In previous generations, Sean, um, I would suspect that the the basic literacy involved uh, learning how to read and write and uh, and largely uh, well, fill out forms, do things that that are fairly basic. And a lot of that responsibility uh, was borne by schools, by the education system. Are we in a different era now where the responsibilities have shifted for you know, for producing digital literacy in our society? Uh, yeah, I, I think that's that's one of the challenges we kind of identified. Um, so um, is, is where this type of activity should happen. And one of the things that makes it tough is all those things you've articulated, uh, reading, uh, uh, numeracy, uh, uh, writing skills, um, it's not like we can ignore those. We still need to do all those things through the through the traditional education system, but now we're laying on even more uh, more expectations. And so um, we think the school systems need to be a part of it. And 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 part of what we did in this report was kind of doing an inventory of what various education systems are doing uh, in terms of teaching digital skills. But I think we've come to the conclusion that the kind of public education systems will never be fully able to, to teach all these skills, uh, partially because many of them are more real world uh, context specific, but also because it's, it's, you know, the mechanics of teaching reading or math, uh, yes, they change and we learn over time, but, but really we've been doing that for, you know, more than a hundred years. Um, digital skills, the very nature of them change, uh, you know, on a on a decade by decade basis, and even faster. And so it's hard to for slow kind of institutional homes to uh, to really um, to to stay up to date and, and and be super relevant on what those skills uh, need to be. So is the responsibility shifting toward a personal responsibility and an employer responsibility, an institutional responsibility? Where? Yeah, I think what we're trying to say is, um, first of all, the system's quite fragmented, and it's very hard for an individual, even a motivated individual, to to really navigate uh, through this system. So, theoretically, all these resources are out there. Uh, you can learn some things in the school system. There's all kinds of you know online uh, uh, programs for kind of teaching yourself these skills. Uh, there are there are all lots of interesting kind of non-for-profits and startups. There's organizations like libraries and others that do this work. Um, and then employers, 100%, um, um, need to think about their end uh, of how to train employees once they're on the job. Uh, our kind of point is, uh, unlike you know the path to, to maybe go through and become traditionally literate, uh, uh, which is fairly clear, uh, this path on the digital side is quite confusing. And, and so what we need to do is clarify the responsibilities, as you've kind of said, and make it as, as easy as possible uh, for individuals who do need to assume this responsibility, but with the help of knowing where to go, how to acquire those skills, how do they fit into each, how do these programs fit into each other and, and complement each other? 
So let's assume we have everything clarified moving forward. I'm wondering at what stage, you know, younger people will have to go towards specialization. Is it going to be too late for them if they don't start until, say, post-secondary? Should they be taking supplemental training classes, you know, while they're still in high school, even younger than that? Yeah, uh, so we think, and, and a lot of the evidence supports, that the earlier you can um, uh, expose your children to these types of concepts, the better. Um, and, and again, if it's, if it's you know, there's kind of two levels in some way of thinking about these challenges. Number one is, you know, we definitely need, and there's, there's a clear demand for more um, people with kind of science, technology, engineering, math, uh, computer science skills, in the economy. And so the earlier you can get, um, you know, a child to be interested in that uh, and exposed to those concepts, the more likely they're going to stick with that path and, you know, go on to post-secondary and specialize in that area. So that, that's one important area for the economy. Uh, that's, that, that's critical. And then the, the more general set of skills, uh, just using these technologies in your, your day-to-day jobs uh, again, there's evidence to show that um, the earlier you in, involve youth in learning how to use these things, um, the better. There's a lot of evidence that shows once once somebody decides, oh, I'm not a math person, oh, I'm not a I'm not a technical person, they start to shut down their um, openness to learning, and then it becomes kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy, and uh they, they they shy away from trying new things and then um and suddenly your ability to pick up these skills become harder and harder the, the longer you go in life yeah and, and of course you can see this for people who are in their well for for that matter in their 20s but certainly 30s 40s 50s 60s uh the people who have who just decided that in fact it became too overwhelming um is there any kind of roadmap on how you get yourself back on some track here and, and what kind of assistance is needed in order to nudge you back on the road? Yeah, I, I think for, um, for, it depends on, I think it would be very dependent on what kind of stage you are in your life. Um, for example, we, we did briefly in this report go into kind of skills and opportunities for seniors, for example, mm-hmm. which, is, which is kind of very different. You, you know, some seniors are still in the workforce, but many seniors are looking uh, or may need digital tools to stay in touch with loved ones, to kind of not feel isolated, to be able to use uh, technology to, to learn about the world and, and, and to stay connected. Um, so there are some interesting models piloted by a, a few libraries and others that are that are working on that area. Um, whereas, you know, somebody may be a very different uh, point in that stage in their, their life. Let's say someone mid-career and their job is potentially being disrupted uh, by changes in the economy or changes in in, in technology, um, what kind of what kind of programs um, are in place? And, and there's also some interesting examples starting to crop up where you say, uh, can we transition somebody with you know minimal amount of upgrade into a job that is more uh, in demand, but also uses some more of these 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 basic skills? And so we didn't necessarily map out kind of a a path for the whole country in here. This 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 report was about more identifying um, where the gaps were, and also identifying where we thought there were some promising models. And kind of our our overarching uh, advice is to kind of say, let's investigate some of these models, 
um, and examples where people have started to make some really good progress and see if they can be examples for scaling up uh, programming you know, across the country. Well, Sean, you've inspired me to make that long-awaited transfer over from my floppy disks to the cloud, but uh, I want to thank you for <laughs> You can open us. up your Excel program finally? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, Sean, excellent, thank you so excellent. much for joining us on the show today. Thank you for being here, for letting that, me be there. That's Sean Mullen. He's executive director at the Brookfield Institute for Innovation and Entrepreneurship at Ryerson University. Coming up next, the long road to securing Surrey's LRT line. Shovels could be in the ground as early as 2019 on a $1.65 billion light rail transit line in Surrey. This rapid transit project is part of TransLink's multi-billion dollar transportation vision for the region. And the most recent round of public consultations closed down this week. Joining us today, it's Anita Huberman, the CEO of the Surrey Board of Trade. And we're going to take a look at what comes next. Anita, thanks for joining us on the show today. Thank you. So I tell you, as somebody who grew up in Surrey, I could have used this so much during all of my commutes. What is the feeling right now? Is there a lot of anticipation going on with regards to the next steps that are moving forward? Well, I think there's a lot of anticipation about uh, getting it going. I know that in the face of an election that's taking place this fall, uh, civically, I think there's, uh, you know, some people that are indicating they do not want LRT, but the decisions have been made and we are looking forward to breaking ground uh, as it'll probably be 2020 is uh, when construction will actually begin. You have the same uh, little uh, groundswell of some pushback in Surrey that there is even in Vancouver. So do you think, though, the point has passed where there can be any reversal on this one, that it is going to move? The point has passed uh, for the L portion of LRT. So that's on 104th between 152 and King George, and then from uh, 104 to 72nd Avenue. The question mark is the Fraser Highway piece. However, the funding that we've received from all levels of government uh, includes some pre-construction or pre-engineering work along the Fraser Highway piece. Certainly, with a third of our mayors transitioning in Metro Vancouver, there's always an opportunity to stall infrastructure projects, but the danger in doing so is you will lose the confidence of the federal government to invest in any further projects. And so much work has already been done. If we do stall it uh, after the election, then that money is going to go somewhere else in the country. You use the very dangerous word stall, and a lot of people would look at, say, the transit plebiscite that we had, or transportation plebiscite that we had a number of years ago, and how that maybe put the region back in terms of our infrastructure plans. Are there concerns that, you know, we, we could get more, you know, steps backwards if we don't move forward on this project? We're so behind already when it comes to transportation infrastructure, and you can see it. Uh, you can feel it as you're moving around Metro. And really, why is it that uh, we always have to stall everything in Metro Vancouver? 
let's just get on with it. I we went to Phoenix and there were a group of people that had were uh, were naysayers as well for LRT, but now it's so successful in building vibrant communities, uh, bringing in business. They're adding another 40 miles of LRT track. And uh, it's just uh, amazing the potential in building a world-class rapid transit technology. Even SkyTrain, when it was first built in 86, had a group of naysayers. Well, tell me a little bit. I mean, how is this going to change the community just on a tangible level when we think about transportation stretching out uh, from you know that, that uh, Surrey Center area? How is that going to have tangible impacts on the rest of the city? It's going to tie our city together. And remember, this is only the beginning. Uh, it will go out to uh, Cloverdale. It will go out to South Surrey and White Rock. The power of light rail is that it's going to provide mobility to residents and businesses. It's going to create um, an ability to densify our corridors, both from a commercial perspective, residential perspective, create jobs, affordable development, accessible accessible hop-on, hop-off types of uh, perspectives in, in utilizing transit. This is not about going into Vancouver. This is about making sure that people live, work, and play in Surrey and south of the Fraser. This is the economic hub of British Columbia. There's over 400 of such systems worldwide, uh, and uh, and really it's, it's more about uh, an economic development strategy uh, for Surrey and south of the Fraser. What kind of disruption will take place during construction, Anita? As you know, transit projects are, are large. They require a great deal of hands-on. Uh, what are businesses saying about what kind of disruption they're expecting to experience? Certainly with any type of construction of a major infrastructure project, there will be delays to businesses. Uh, in terms of access points. What we are doing very early on, and we're hoping to start this fall, in fact, is a business outreach and engagement strategy. There's about 800 businesses along the corridor uh, of the first leg of LRT construction. We will be reaching out to them and, uh, and saying, you know, the, this is what's going to happen. How can we work together to make sure that clients can still access your business and work together with the city and TransLink, who TransLink is going to be managing this project, uh, as they do with uh, all of our transit pieces in Metro. But uh, we all will be working together in a coordinated way. But it's about communication, so we don't have another Canby Street disaster. Yeah. Are, are you going to be reaching out to other jurisdictions, other cities that have gone through this process? We think of the Tri-Cities area. They've done that very recently. Vancouver, of course, during the construction of the Canada Line. There must be best, best practices out there that you could uh, pick apart from. So the best practices that we've uh, aligned ourselves are those communities that have LRT, successful implementation of it, uh, such as Mississauga, Hamilton, Phoenix, Portland, uh, and other parts of the world. And uh, so our business engagement proposal uh, actually blends all of those good learnings together. And nothing's going to be perfect, I guarantee it. But uh, we are doing everything we can to mitigate 
the disruption to businesses. Um, this week, Anita, as you know, the city of Vancouver moved to try to uh, mitigate some of the speculation that might be taking place along the Broadway corridor that'll be created as a result of the extension of the Millennium Line, another one of these infrastructure projects. Are there any concerns at all in Surrey about uh, any kind of speculation that'll take place along some of these corridors and perhaps with the city and business for that matter uh, being concerned that perhaps it's uh, th- there need to be measures in place in order to avoid some of that? Yes, absolutely. In fact, the city's most recent release of their affordable housing strategy incorporates the light rail uh, transit infrastructure and the densification around commercial residential on those corridors and um, putting in measures, though not concrete yet, uh, to try to avoid acts of speculation in our housing sector. Uh, it's not going to be perfect again, but uh, the the city of Surrey and, uh, and our participation in that, uh, that is definitely top of mind. I also have to think that rising costs would be top of mind. We've seen the cost of this project rise over the number of years. Are there also concerns, and, and you guys just brought it up, the very fact that there could be speculative concerns, but also just property values are going up, land values are going up. Could there be a bit of a risk of the cost of this project going up more than people expected? And it will. The the longer we delay, and we have been delayed, especially with the transit uh, plebiscite, uh, our costs have gone up from the original forecast of light rail construction. And you even heard uh, TransLink articulating increased costs for for their plans because of delays that have happened around funding decisions. So I anticipate uh, there will be more of that to come. Certainly, Metro Vancouver is an attractive place to live. We're the most expensive uh, place in Canada. And housing costs continue to either um, stay stable or rise, even though our housing supply continues to dwindle. And that's because people love to live here. You um, you alluded earlier, of course, to the fact that it's an election year and uh, there might be some delays. One delay that is quite apparent already is in the area of mobility pricing and how it is that uh, some of the phases of these these projects will be paid for um, as a result uh, of of the investments. Pose a bit of a put a bit of a crystal ball out there. Uh, what do you think is going to be the mix, the blend of uh, mechanisms in order to pay eventually? for the final phases of these projects from a regional standpoint and and then perhaps for some of the operations? Well, definitely I agree there needs to be a sustainable funding plan for transportation projects either to sustain them now or build new in the future. And uh, we need to think about the future as well. Every politician uh, or upcoming politician in this election is going to avoid uh, the topic of mobility pricing because no one wants to pay more to get around. I, I think there does need to be a mechanism, though, uh, whether it's um, distance-based pricing, mobility, road pricing. We've seen good examples of that around the world. But uh, our residents, uh, their bottom line is eroding, 
and uh, and I, I just think it's going to be very difficult for any politician and any um, anyone to really push through a formalized mobility pricing plan. Well, yeah. I, I think about the seven or eight mayoral candidates here in Vancouver, and we have a whole lot emerging in Surrey right now. I've got to believe on the spectrum. Maybe somebody's going to dip their toes into that pool. Like you said, that could be a little bit poisonous, uh, Anita, going towards these municipal elections. I think it would be great to have an update on that in the coming months, especially as we get the uh, elections underway. But for now, I want to thank you for joining us on the program today. Thank you. That's Anita Hubberman. She's a CEO of the Surrey Board of Trade. And that's it for our show today. Thanks for listening to BIV Today. Subscribe to us. Listen to some of our earlier episodes on iTunes, Stitcher, and of course at BIV.com where you can find more business news. Thanks a lot for listening. 